good to be back with you once again, and I'm excited to dive back into Galatians chapter 3. Now, um, a good sermon, I believe, has an element of teaching in it, and then ultimately, if you stop just with teaching, I don't think it's a good sermon. You need to get to preaching as well. Uh, sermons are not just about information. It's about transformation. And so we're going to get there today. But listen, this is, this is a typical Ryan McCammock sermon. Usually, I, I will get very preachy right away. Um, I'm not going to get really preachy until the very end. Usually, I'll say, here's where we're going. I kind of tell you the point, and then I kind of support the point. We're going to do it in reverse today. So I'm going to build the argument for most of the time, and then I'll get a little hot and bothered at the end, okay? So that, that's where we're going. You with me? All right, so I don't want any emails or phone calls. or I don't want any of those, all right? So I told you in advance, so I have carte blanche here, right? I can say whatever I want. Great. All right, let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace, and I pray that you would help us as we open your word this morning. Lord, we need you. We need you. We just pause with empty hands and ask that by your spirit, through your word, you would meet with us in fresh and powerful ways. Oh God, help us to see Jesus and Jesus alone. Hide me behind the cross. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. How many of you have had the distinct privilege of taking a swig of spoiled milk before. Good times, right? Good times, yeah. When you do that, that is not an experience that you want to repeat anytime in the near future. This is really funny, by the way. I had this sermon written. I don't know when the last time this happened to me uh, was, but it happened to me last night. I was like, the Lord has spoken. We had some folks over, and we were having cookies, and I was like, oh, I'm going to go get a glass of milk. And I poured it, and I dipped the, the cookie in the milk, and I took a bite, and I said, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Um, and it was not the cookie. It was the milk. And so I was like, Lord, you are so wise, and I guess a bit of a jokester, too. So uh, title of the message today is simply Expired. There's an urban legend that said that expiration dates appeared on milk because of a, a very notorious person. Anybody heard this before? I'd never heard it before. Al Capone. Al Capone, it was said, had a niece that got sick from drinking spoiled milk. And so he pressured the milk industry to put the expiration dates. So whenever you have expiration dates on your fridge, you can thank the great pillar of the faith, Al Capone, for that wonderful service to humanity. Well, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because it, it illustrates a reality. That is, sometimes we can hang on to a good thing for so long that it actually becomes a harmful thing. Like milk, right? You can hang on to a good thing for so long that it actually becomes a harmful thing. And I think that illustrates, in one sense, what was happening in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, if you remember, there were these false teachers, and they were insisting that if you really wanted to be on God's varsity squad, like if you really wanted to be accepted before God, like super holy, you needed to not only trust in Jesus, 
but you also needed to hang on to the Jewish laws and customs. They were saying, yes, Jesus is good, but you also need the Jewish laws and the custom. You hang on to that thing. And basically, Paul comes on the scene and says, no, 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 no. The law actually has an expiration date on it. And by your hanging on to it for so long, you are actually making a good thing into a harmful thing. You are hanging on to something that has expired. Now, before you get too critical of the folks of Galatia, before you get too critical of the Jewish false teachers, I want you to remember a certain reality. Up to this point in redemptive history, for thousands of years, if you wanted to be a follower of the God of the Bible, if you wanted to be a follower of Yahweh, the only way essentially to do it was to be Jewish. Like followers of God were basically restricted to this little strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea. But in a very real sense, true followers of the Lord were really Jewish in their nature. So you understand a bit why these false teachers, it's hard for them to let go. They're saying, hey, all we've known is our Jewish heritage, our Jewish culture. That's all we're accustomed to. And that's part and parcel of what it means to follow God. And now Paul has the audacity to come along and say, hey, you don't need any of that stuff anymore. It's got an expiration date on it. You need to take that whole big old gallon of milk and chuck it out. And you're like, I paid like three and a half dollars for this at Publix. He's saying throat, is that low? Trisha does the shopping, all right, all right, yeah. The idea is simply this. They were hanging on to something that they didn't need to hang on to anymore. And Paul is saying this thing that you are clinging so tightly to is actually turning into something very harmful for you. He says it repeatedly throughout the whole book. In fact, let's look at it. Galatians chapter 2, verse number 16. Look at the screen. By the works of the... No one will be justified. Galatians 2, verse 21. For if righteousness comes through the... Then Christ died for nothing. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 10. For all who rely on the works of the... Are under a curse. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 11. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the... Notice a the theme. Paul's just beating this drum over and over and over. As I said a couple of weeks ago, you could summarize the whole book of Galatians with three words. And they all begin with the letter J because I'm a preacher. Just Jesus justifies. That's the theme of Galatians. Just Jesus justifies. And whenever you hang on to the law in any sense, whenever you hang on to your cultural heritage or religious performance, you are corrupting the thing that you claim to hold to. Look, God does not accept you based on what you do, but rather based on what Christ has done. God does not accept you based on what you do, but rather based on what Christ has done. This Galatian fixation on the Jewish law was in a sense like hanging on to a glass of spoiled milk. So this raises a question. Okay, think with me. Remember I told you this is pretty teachy at the beginning. Why then did God give the law in the first place? So if the law in one sense was going to expire, 
if the law was eventually going to spoil, why did God give it to them? Why didn't he just give them the whole enchilada right away, point them to Christ right away? What is the purpose of the law if it had a limited shelf life, as it were? Is, is God like, was he confused about that or anything? Well, the answer is no. And Paul actually, in this passage of Scripture, directly addresses this question. He's saying, look, you can't hang on to the law anymore, but the law actually has its purposes. And I want you to understand what the purposes are, not so that you hang on to it, so that you understand the plans and the purposes of God. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul raises this question. Why then was the law given? So what we want to do in the next few minutes together is unpack that question. Paul, in this text, gives us two reasons why the law was given, or two purposes of the law based on Galatians chapter 3. The first one is this. Why was the law given? The law was given to point out sin. Paul begins his explanation of the law's purpose in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Look at what it says here. The law was added for the sake of transgressions. In other words, one of the functions of the law was to expose our sinfulness. Transgressions is just a great big word that means sin. The law was given to expose our sinfulness. Paul unpacks this in a little more detail over in Romans chapter 7. Look there if you would up on the screen. Romans chapter 7, verse number 7. I would have not known sin if it weren't for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, do not covet. In other words, the function of the law was to show us our sin. It was to lay out God's standard and show us where we fell short of it. Let me give you an illustration to help you. How many of you at some point in your life, I mean, I'm sure it's not recently, but at some point in your life have been cruising down the interstate at, let's just say, a good clip. Let's say that. Let's say... You're going along at, for you, what is a very comfortable speed, but may not be the accepted cultural norms, right? So you're rolling down the highway, you know, zipping down there, and all of a sudden, on your right-hand side, you see this white piece of metal outlined in black with giant numbers on it, and we call that a... You guys are not enthusiastic about this because some of you think those are from the devil, right? You're antinomians. You don't believe in the law. That's it. So there's a speed limit sign, and you're cruising along. You see the sign, and suddenly you do what? You hit the brake. Now, what just happened? Now, nothing like internally in you changed. All that changed is you became aware of the law was, and because you were aware of what the law was, you slowed down to meet that standard. That's what the law does. The law shows us where we are not living up to standards. Or in one sense, we need the law in order to understand that we are law breakers. Without the law, we cannot know that we are breaking God's law. Paul is basically saying this. I wouldn't have known that coveting was a problem until God told me it was a problem. Now I know that I break the law because God told me what the law was. That's the function of the law, to show us our sin. And here's the reality. 
So often we need to be reminded of the law because we fall short of it so often. But unlike speed limit signs, which everybody is capable of keeping. Now, I know you may dispute that. I, may, I know some of you are like, I am not capable of keeping the speed limit. It is beyond my capacity. God's law cannot be kept perfectly. L let me give you an illustration of that. Let me read just one verse from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. To quote the great theologian, Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? Right? Like, just honestly, evaluate yourself on that one command. Just one. I, I'll just, let me just be wholly transparent. I'm not sure I've ever done that. Like for 10 seconds, I'm not sure that I have loved the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength. Why? Because I love me some me. I have a hard time not thinking about me. And look, you do too. We're all narcissists. We all want to invite other people into the cult of one. Get on board with my agenda, my thoughts, my plans. Worship me, love me, do me. You be on board with exalting me. So this command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. I think I added the New Testament version to it. Thanks, Awana, right? That in and of itself should bring us to the end of ourselves. Like, oh my word, I'm a lawbreaker. Because I'm not living up to the standard of God's law. Just one command in the scripture kind of brings me to the end of myself. So why would the Lord then give us the law that he knows that we can't keep it? If the law is to point out our sinfulness, is God just mean? Does he give us the law because he wants us to walk around feeling bad about ourselves all the time? Does he give us the law because he just wants us to be like heartbroken constantly? Hey, look, here's the law. You can't do it. Have a nice day. No, because there's a second function of the law. The law is not just meant to point out our sin. The second function of the law that Paul outlines here is to prepare us for Christ. The law doesn't just point out our sinfulness, but it points us to the Savior. Look back at verse 19 again. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgression. Now notice this little phrase. This preposition is super important. Until, until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. So go back to our opening illustration about expired milk. It has a particular date on it. And if the law was a gallon of milk in your refrigerator, it would have a particular date on it. And that date would be until the seed to whom the promise would made was come. In other words, this law is good until the seed comes. And as we learned last week, who's the seed? It's Jesus. So the law had a function, had a purpose until Christ came. And at that point, it expired. It, its expiration date was hit. What this means that when Jesus came, the Old Testament law had fulfilled its purpose. In this way, listen, 
the Old Testament law was like training wheels. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you've ever taught a kid to ride a bike, or if you've ever been a kid and have learned how to ride a bike, you know, which I think that should be everybody, right? Well, if you, anybody not able to ride a bike in it, Denise. Okay, come over to my house. We got plenty of training wheels. Come on over, yeah. yeah. Training wheels are super helpful to teach a kid to ride a bike. They are super helpful. And yet, when the manufacturers of bikes make training wheels, they make them in such a way that, they, that you can remove them, right? Because they're only meant to be on there for a particular time period. They have a use, they have a function, they're very helpful, but they're not permanent. It would be a very silly thing. I just live a mile away from here, from church. It would be a very silly thing if you saw me riding my bike to church, which I do almost every day, coming down here and I've got training wheels on. And you'd be like, what is wrong with that guy? It's time to move on. Like, you, you ought to be able to ride a bike now because those things are good for four and five-year-olds, but they're not good for grown men. You've moved on. Amen. Okay. You have training wheels, Derek? No. Okay, good. Yeah. And Paul's saying essentially the same thing. Hey, the law was useful, had a purpose, but look, they've expired move on. Christ has now come. It, the function of the law was to point you to the reality. The function of the training wheels is to get you to ride the bike. The function of the law is to get you to Jesus, where you don't need those training wheels anymore. We shouldn't hang on to them because they are no longer of use. Look, Paul further elaborates this point in verse number 21. Look at what it says. For if the law had been granted the ability to give life, then righteously we'd certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Christ Jesus to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until coming faith was revealed. The law just got us to Jesus. That's what is the function. In other words, the law could never save, but it pointed to the one who could. The purpose of the law was not to save us, but to say you need something greater than the law. In a sense, listen, the whole Old Testament, the entire Old Testament story is an illustration of the law's inability to do what was necessary. Stop up and think about it for a minute. So the children of Israel get delivered from Egypt. God gives them the law at Mount Sinai. And the first thing they do is build an idol. The law didn't change them fundamentally. Well, they now, they now knew what to do, but it, it couldn't do what was necessary to change them from the inside out. Okay, fast forward. They finally get to the promised land. Praise the Lord. They got God's law. They know how they're supposed to live. They know how they're supposed to live under God's guidance. Have you ever read the book of Judges? It's like the worst reality TV show combined with the worst soap opera. It's lurid. It's wicked. It's terrible. And it's people who had God's law. Oh, fast forward ahead. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles tells the stories of the rulers of the nation of Israel. And by the way, when you became a king in Israel, one of the things you had to do is write down the... You had to make your own copy of the law. And guess how they did at obeying it? Not very well at all. You read through this list and you're like, is there any good ones? 
I mean, the best of them, David, had a few hiccups. Oh, and did the law have the power to change the nation of Israel that was supposed to be the shining light to the rest of the world? No, they were so bad that God had to send them into captivity because he's like, you guys are embarrassing me. You're supposed to be this light, and you're just like, if not worse, than everybody else. The law does not have the power to transform. We need something more significant than the law. You don't just need to know what to do. You need the ability to do it. You don't just need instruction. You need transformation. You don't just need to obey the commands. You need the desire to obey those commands. And the law in and of itself doesn't have the ability to fundamentally transform a person. Only Jesus could do that. In a very real sense, the Old Testament story is the apologetic for the New Testament Savior. If you read through the story of the Old Testament, it's essentially doing this. You need Christ! Laws can't change! They're good. They have their purposes. But those laws are like a, a, I don't know, a cattle prod in one sense. Driving you where you need to go. Driving you to the Savior. It is only through Christ that you can really be justified and acceptable in God's sight. Paul adds one more powerful image. The law then was our guardian until Christ came. So that we can be justified by faith. We don't have like a super close um, modern word equivalent to guardian. Um, I think the closest that we had would maybe be like governess. So in the ancient world, what happened is, is as a child was growing up, they were entrusted to the care of a guardian. And the guardian's job was to like take them to and from school. And basically, like, make sure they learn, like, their P's and Q's and their manners. Like, that was the guardian's job. Guardian, if you called somebody a guardian, it was kind of like an insult. It wasn't like a, a well-loved term. It was kind of like, oh, everybody hates their guardian, that type of idea. Because they were a disciplinarian. That was their primary job. Like, get, no, don't go there, no, don't go there, no, get over to school, do your homework, you know, hold your pinky up when you hold your tea. Like, this was their job. Just, like, correct, correct, correct. So don't think of, like... Maria Von Trapp from The Sound of Music. Think of Miss Hannigan from Little Orphan Annie. Like hated. Like we don't, you don't want to be under Miss Hannigan. And basically Paul is saying the law was Miss Hannigan until Christ came. If you don't get that illustration, go home, watch any of the Little Orphan Annies. I think they're all pretty good. The law was our guardian, our disciplinarian until Christ came. The law's purpose was just to get us to the real deal, the full enchilada. It wasn't meant to be the whole thing in and of itself. Listen, in one very real sense, the law existed to expose its own inadequacy. God gave us the law in one sense to show us that the law was not enough. You need something more. So if the law was meant to point to Christ, why then is Christ's work so much better than the law? In other words, what can Christ do that the law couldn't? So glad you asked. Look back at Galatians chapter 3, verse number 25. And this is where we get the preachy bit, so you can lean in a little bit if you want. 
But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Amen? We're no longer under Miss Hannigan. For through faith, what happens? What happens when you trust in Jesus? Through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with righteousness in Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. So let's recap. Through faith in Jesus, you become a child of God. You become clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You become united with God's people, and you become an heir of his promises. Through Jesus, in other words, you are accepted 100%. These Jews, these false teachers, they're fighting for acceptance. God, am I doing enough? God, am I doing enough? God, am I doing enough? Keep your P's and Q's. Keep the law. Keep the customs. Keep your Jewish traditions. Keep all of them. And God says, not enough. And Paul says, but if you trust in Jesus, you want to be really Jewish? You want to be a true seed of Abraham? You want to be a true heir of the promise, trust in the work of Christ. And you are a child of God, clothed in Christ, united with God's people. You are more Jewish than Rabbi Ben whoever if you've trusted in the work of Christ. Because true Jewishness, true union with Christ is how we become the seed of Abraham. How we become the heirs of all of those rich promises of the Old Testament. They flow to us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You want to be accepted, put down the law. You want to be accepted, put down your performance. You want to be accepted, trust in Christ and Christ alone because just Jesus justifies. Not your works, not your morality, not your religion, not your trying harder, not your social good. Nothing will justify you apart from the finished work of Christ. The good news is not do and Christ will accept you. The good news is accept what Christ has done for you. There is a world of difference between those two statements. It is not do and Christ will accept you. It is accept what Christ has done for you. All the false teachers attempt at self-justification. Listen to that statement. self justification were folly. But here's the reality and where it gets terribly, terribly relevant. Listen carefully, listen really carefully. All of us, all of us are tempted to go on some sort of self-justification project. All of us. Let me use a little analogy to try to help you see what I mean by this. Imagine that you are being interviewed for a job by God. And you'll go into God's office and you say, God, you should accept me on your team. 
and you hand him your resume. Here's my question. What's on your resume? What is it that you write on that piece of paper that makes you think that God should have you on his team, as it were? Oh, yeah, 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 Jesus is on there. Yeah, that's the top one. Like, I trusted in Jesus. That's number one on the list. But you also notice some of my other accomplishments, God. I have several things that you should look at and consider because you should really accept me because, yes, I've trusted in Jesus, but, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of easy. A lot of people trust in Jesus, but I'm really a quality candidate. Friends, if we begin to, like, scribble our MBA there, jot that on there, look at my work history performance, you know what our Savior will kindly do? He will take that resume and he will crumple it up. And he will say, thank you. But unfortunately, this is not the type of candidates that I'm looking for. But if you will walk into God's office and say, frankly, you shouldn't hire me for your team. My resume is... Nothing. In fact, all I've got is a rap sheet. List all the charges against me, all the demerits. If you could take a look at that for me. Slide that across the table. But then you said, hey, but there was this other guy. I believe he's your son. And he handed me his resume. And he said that if I brought this to you, that his resume was sufficient to cover up and then some all of my rap sheet. And you slide that across the table. God would look at you and say, you're exactly the type of candidate I'm looking for. You got nothing. But you have come through the person and work of Jesus and therefore you are accepted. So here's my question. What are you tempted to write on your resume? There's two things, two ways you can go about this. You can do the religious way, which some of us do. Being in the good old South, some of us are tempted. God, you should accept me because I go to church. I'm a moral person. I read my Bible. My granddaddy was a preacher. Ready? A Baptist one. <laughs> I'm a deacon. I serve. I raise my kids right. Whatever it is, when we're tempted to add kind of religious activity to our resume, that is offensive to God. Listen, Christ's resume doesn't need any embellishments. It's already exactly what is needed. But you know we have another tendency, maybe even more common in the United States of America today. And it is to add non-religious things to our resume. You, you see, what do you mean by that? Well, we, we've stopped asking the question oftentimes, what does God think about me? Or does God accept me? And our fundamental question often becomes, do I accept myself? Friends, that's a dangerous trajectory, by the way. Now, 
I'm not saying that there's nothing to the literature or anything on self-esteem or self-worth. That's not the point of this. But what I do want us to see is sometimes we can subtly believe that we are acceptable because of not our performance, but because of how we line up on social issues. So we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, I'm acceptable because I'm on this side on this particular social issue. I care about this justice matter. So I'm acceptable. I'm acceptable because I voted this way. Therefore, I can look at myself in the mirror and say, you're a good person. I'm acceptable because I've been successful in my career. I'm a good and productive member of society. You can't tell me that I'm not acceptable because look at all of I've done. I'm successful. So we walk a little higher, our chest propped up a little bit, a little bit more. I'm acceptable because I earn a certain paycheck, because my bank account says this, because my portfolio is high. As soon as we begin to, begin to smuggle those things into our acceptability, maybe, just maybe, we're trying to add to our resume. And I just want to caution all of us against that danger that we can add both religious things and non-religious things before our resume to God and say, God, you should accept me because of this. But any attempt to add to the resume of Christ is ultimately beginning to fudge on the gospel. Because again, the message of Galatians and the whole Bible in one sense is just Jesus justifies. We are not accepted based on anything that we have done. Now, human beings have tremendous worth, tremendous value. But it is all intrinsic value because of the one who made us. Yes, we are broken, but we are beautiful because stamped all over you is the image of the creator. But we cannot pull up ourselves by our bootstraps and make ourselves acceptable to God. The only way we become right relationship with him, the only way we become justified is not by performing well. But it's by trusting in one who performed on our behalf. So if you feel down in the dumps, let me encourage you, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus who went to the dumps for you. The Bible actually said Jesus went outside the camp. He was rejected. He was scorned. Why? To bring you in. There's a wonderful story that Jesus told in Luke chapter, Luke chapter 15 that illustrates this point perfectly. It's the story of the prodigal sons, plural. In the story, you know, this wealthy landowner had two sons. The younger son demanded his inheritance early from his father and went out and spent it on partying. Eventually, when the money ran out, the son found himself at the end of his rope, starving and in desperation. And the Bible says this, in despair, he came to his senses. Luke chapter 15, verse number 18. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. In other words, the younger son in faith pleaded for his father's mercy. He brought his rap sheet, not his resume. And he comes to the father and what happens? Luke 15, verse 20. But while the son was a long way off. His father saw him and was filled with compassion and he ran and he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. Quick, 
Bring out the best robe, put it on him, a ring on his finger, a sandal on his feet. Then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and alive again. He was lost and he's now found. Doesn't that sound like Galatians? Clothe him, call him my son, bring him in as the heir of all my promises. This is my son. He brought his rap sheet to God and God said, you're accepted. All your brokenness, all your sin, all of your junk, all of your mess, bring it and you will be accepted. But there's another son. And this is the heartbreaking part of the story. The older son who did all the right things. He had a resume and it was a good one. And he brought it to his father. Look at what it says, Luke 15, verse 28. He became angry and he didn't want to go in. So the father came and pleaded with him, but he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving for years for you, resume. I've never disobeyed you, resume. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your assets and prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattered calf for him. Here's the tragedy. Though the father came out to both of the sons, only one of them came in the tent. And it was not the one with the resume. The message of the gospel is not that God helps good people along their way, but God makes bad people good. So let's run to Jesus. He alone justifies. Let's get off the self-justification treadmill. It doesn't work. Don't look inward for your sense of meaning and purpose and all rightness or okayness. Look upward. The author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, famously said it this way. My righteousness, my justification, my sense of self-worth, my sense of acceptableness is in heaven. That is the basis for God's acceptance for you. The one who lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, and is now seated at the right hand of God. You are as perfect as you can be if you have trusted in Jesus in your position. God doesn't look at you and see all your mess. God looks at you and sees the righteousness of Christ. You are accepted as you can be. God can no more disown you than he can disown Jesus himself. So stop with self-justification. Stop. It doesn't work. It's destructive. And friends, let me say this as kindly as possible. It is damning. If you slide that resume with one iota of you across the desk, God will say, unaccepted. But if you slide that resume with nothing but the blood of Jesus, God will say, that is my son. That is my daughter. They are clothed in the righteousness of my son. They are an heir of my promise. 
They are part of my people. They are the seed of Abraham. And all the rich and vast promises of the Bible belong to them. Welcome home. Let's run to our Savior. Your position in Christ is based solely, solely, solely on the performance of Christ, not yours. So what's the point? The point is simply this. We must trust in Jesus alone for our justification. That's it. Jesus alone. Now, I know I've been like direct and hard and driving home this simple point, but we are all, we all got a little gospel smuggler in us. By nature, we try to smuggle some of us into the gospel. And look, Jesus won't be sweet to you until you get all of you out of it. Because you think you're contributing. When you realize nothing in your hands you bring simply to the cross you cling, Jesus all of a sudden becomes precious to you. So let me make two final words of application. First one is this. If your resume is long, if your resume is impressive, let me encourage you to remember this. Jesus doesn't need your help to get the job. His resume is already enough. Don't you dare think that you can contribute anything to the resume of Christ. I don't care how good you've been, how practically perfect you've lived. Your resume does not compare to the resume of Christ. So put it away. Listen, now on the other side, if your rap sheet is long, you're keenly aware of all the ways that you have sinned against God, and you're just not sure if God can accept you. Listen to this. If God accepts you on the basis of Christ, if it's good enough for God, it should be good enough for you. You know, you ever said the ridiculous theological statement? It's terrible theology, by the way. I know God forgives me, I just can't forgive myself. I mean, throw that in the trash right now. Because that is, that is, that is chalked with hubris. Because if the creator of the universe, the perfect being in the world can say, if you do this, if you trust in my son, I forgive you. What? How dare we say I can't forgive myself? Some of you need to put that rap sheet down and say, it is covered. And I'm going to stop picking it up. It is taken care of. So I don't know how the Lord is speaking to you this morning. I want to encourage you, though, right now. I'm going to close quietly with a word of prayer. Would you talk to the Lord right now? Maybe you fall on the side of like, man, I've been contributing. I, I can feel myself sneaking some stuff onto my resume. Or maybe you're overwhelmed by the size of your rap sheet. Whatever the case is, would you just say, God, help me to trust in Jesus alone. Let's do that together. Father, help us to trust in you. Take a minute and talk to God.
if we confess our sins. Because of Jesus, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, your word says that because of Jesus, that there is nothing in all creation, not height nor depth, nor angels or demons, or the present or the future, or persecution or hardship, or even death itself can separate us from your love. God, help us to believe that Jesus is enough. Just Jesus justifies. We thank you for the work of the Savior. In Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship our Savior.